Okay. Just as we begin and before I begin, I want to bless you today. So maybe just close your eyes again and um, hold out your hands or be in some sort of receiving posture that says, yes, I want to be blessed today. I bless you in the name of Jesus to be healed today, that there might be more stories of healing in this church like the one we heard earlier. I bless you in the name of Jesus to be healed today, to feel pain go away in Jesus' name to know God's love today and to know a lightness in your heart, to know a joy in your heart and a peace in your mind today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, good morning, church. Last week, I read an article this week that said last week, Glasgow was voted the world's friendliest city, beating cities like Belfast, uh, Vancouver, every other city in the world, in fact, to be voted the world's friendliest city. And it doesn't matter that it was just by one travel firm's poll, because it counts, and that's pretty epic. And I've been thinking this last week about things I love about Glasgow. I'm sorry if you don't live in Glasgow, but as soon as travel is allowed again, you should totally come here and see what it's like. But I was thinking this week about things I love about Glasgow, and there are lots of things I love about Glasgow, which is just as well, because I think I'm probably going to be here for a little while yet, but Glasgow is great. And there's a few things I love about it. Things I love about Glasgow. I love how people speak here. And I know it's not like Glasgow specific, but there are some Scottish words that just seem to like perfectly land on what they're describing. So you'll go out into kind of like gray Glasgow day, which it tends to be about nine times out of 10. And, and I love how it's called a, a dreek. Now I can't say it like I love, Mary gave me a thumbs up, which is very supportive. Thank you, Mary. I'm never gonna sound as Scottish as a, as a Scottish person. I love the word shugal to mean shake, wished. Be quiet, curry, as cozy, scunnert, how we all currently feel about lockdown. I love that in Glasgow, people put cones on things and the joke never gets old. You just see something, you'll see another statue. Tomorrow, you'll go on a walk, you'll see another cone. You're like, oh, it's still funny. It's still good. I love that in Glasgow, there are so many parks that are so full of so many dogs. And also, there's always an ice cream van. No matter the season, no matter the stage of lockdown, the ice cream van is there and they are open and they're selling ice cream and slushies and we don't ask any questions, we just enjoy it. Perhaps more than anything else that I love about Glasgow, I love how in Glasgow people don't do anything by halves. If there's enjoyment to be had of something, people will squeeze every last ounce of enjoyment out of that good thing in Glasgow. The sun comes out, it's 13 degrees, tops are off. People in their thousands pre-COVID, post-COVID poured to the parks. Boots are sold out of sun cream. Tesco's are sold out of barbecues. The queue to loop and scoop ice cream is the whole way into town and back. Everyone gets sunburnt. And then they do it all over again the next day. We saw it last week in the snow. There was mass sledge-based panic. People in group chats everywhere. Have you seen a sledge? Where can I get a sledge? Morrison's have them, Morrison's have them. Everyone flocks to Morrison's. Mass sledge-based panic. The small remnant of students, we didn't even know they were here. But then we went to Kelvin Grove and they're here. Who knew? Sledging. 4,000 snow pictures posted on Instagram. The few snowy hills we have in the city sledged within an inch of their life and then sledged some more. Unnamed teenagers sledging straight into small bodies of water. I saw how this week, uh, what I love most about Glaswegians in the snow was that even though shops quickly sold out of sledges, baking trays, any slippery surfaces that they had to sell, it was like, no sledge, no problem. I saw children just, just throwing themselves down hills, nothing but their snowsuits. Students on Pisano boxes, fully grown men on bin lids. Because the choice was either stand at the sidelines and watch everyone else have fun, 
or do whatever it takes to get in the game to participate. I love how on sunny days, on snowy days, when it comes to ultimately good things, people in this city go all in to go all out because the treasure that's to be had is worth it. It's worth packing a picnic. It's worth climbing the hill. It's worth any of the kind of bumps and scrapes and a little bit of sunburn along the way. I want to talk about gutsy faith today for a couple of reasons. One, gutsy faith, operating out of gutsy faith, is one of our core values as a church of which we only have three. So I kind of figured over the the few times that I, I teach in a year, I might just work through those different ones. So I want to look at gutsy faith today as one of our core values. It's one of the filters through which we operate, decision make, plan, pray, live. We're committed to being a people of gutsy faith here in this church. And then secondly, I want to talk about gutsy faith because right now in our weariness, in our fed upness, in our wondering when this will all end, I do think we have a choice whether I can choose whether to step back and tap out and to watch while other people around me, other people close or in the distance live these bold lives of faith in this storm or I can pick up my pizza box and my bin lid, whatever I have to hand in all its imperfection, whatever I've been given, and I can allow Jesus to push me off the edge into what will continue to be a bumpy but exhilarating ride. Today's message is called Gutsy Faith in the Lives of the Josephs. Who knew the name Joseph is to the Bible what the name Laura was to Cairns Hill Primary School in the mid-1990s? There are a few Josephs in there. Now, I wasn't looking for a memorable hook. I'm not obsessed with the name Joseph, but... I felt like during fasting week, God brought my attention back to Old Testament Joseph, and I was thinking about him and his dreams a little bit during uh, that fasting week in January. And then more recently in Bible read-through, I've been thinking about like Mary and Joseph, Joseph. And I mentioned to Brian um, my idea for this message, and he was like, what about the other Joseph? And I had a look at Joseph of Arimathea this last week, and I was like, wow, I think there's a bit of gold there for us too. So it's three Josephs. It's not about their name, but hopefully it will help us remember a little bit of what we see in each of their lives uh, about what it looks like to live with gutsy faith in trying times. Before we get into it, what do I mean by gutsy faith? Today, I am meaning bold, daring, sometimes risk-taking, potentially costly, faith-filled steps of obedience in response to the God who loves us and leads us for his glory, that he might be known, that people might know what he is like. And as a church, it's looked like a few things for us. It's looked like lots of things, probably, but a few that came to my mind this week, it's looked like buying the Southside building for Rehope Southside, who turned two today. It's their birthday. Happy birthday, Rehope Southside. That was a move of gutsy faith to buy that church building and trust that God would provide the money that we needed. It's looked like calling the whole church to a five-day fast in 2017 when for a lot of us back then, that still felt like a really out there idea. It's looked like continuing to go, not pressing pause during a global pandemic, even in all of its uncertainties and the fear that has been so rife. In our lives, Gutsy faith could look anything like being vulnerable enough to share a prayer request or um, moving your whole family across the world. It could look like sending that text or um, quitting your job, even though you don't have another one lined up yet. We get daily opportunities to live this way in ways that might be small, in ways that might be much bigger. So what can we learn from the lives of these Josephs today? I'm going to go in chronological order, and I will spend most of the time on the first Joseph, a bit of time on the second Joseph, and then just a little bit of time on the third Joseph, in case any of you were in the first Joseph and you're wondering about your slow-cooked lamb. It's going to be fine. You're going to be ready for lunch. I'm going to jump about Genesis chapter 37 and chapter 39 first, as we look at Joseph the dreamer first off, if you want to follow along. A little bit of context. 
In chapter 37, we meet him as a young man of 17. A young man of 17, tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brings his dad a bad report about them. Good start, 17-year-old Joseph. We read, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph has a dream about sheaves of corn and his brother's sheaves bowing down to his. And he tells his brothers, and they say to him, do you intend to rule over us? And they hate him all the more. He has a second dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him as well. And he tells this to his brothers and his dad too. Then after that, we hear that his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, his dad, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Go and see if everything is well with them. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron, which we heard about last week. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. They call him the dreamer. They scheme to kill him and say, then let's see what comes of his dreams. But there's a saving interruption. Reuben steps in, says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this empty cistern. <laughs> Great. And he planned to go back and rescue him afterwards. They take off his ornate robe and throw him into the empty cistern. And then there's another interruption. They look up while having their lunch to see a caravan of Ishmaelites. And Judah hatches a different plan. Instead of abandoning Joseph, let's sell him. As I looked at this story again this week, I noticed in a new way the location markers. I feel like Brian has us well trained to now see, okay, where are these things taking place? What might be significant about where these people are at different times? And multiple times it's mentioned that the brothers are meant to be near Shechem, but instead they've moved on to this other place, which is where their paths collide with these Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, going to Egypt. We see that Reuben is mysteriously absent when Joseph is sold. And detail by detail, intervention by intervention, Joseph is taken to Egypt. And he's sold in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The same information is repeated at the start of chapter 39. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. What I see at the start of Joseph's story is that we need gutsy faith. We need robust faith, faith that is becoming mature because God may take us where we need to go in undesirable, unpleasant ways. Joseph at no point chooses to go to Egypt in pursuit of his dreams. He's bit by bit, unfortunate circumstance by seemingly unfortunate circumstance, taken there. There is so much language about how Joseph is taken from one place to another beyond his control. And you might feel right now like you are being carried on the waves of circumstances which are unpleasant. I see in Joseph an encouragement here that this does not mean that you've been abandoned. It doesn't mean that you've been abandoned by God because although being outside of God's will for our lives might be incredibly unpleasant, and that might be an alarm bell to say, okay, am I outside of God's will for my life? Ding, ding, ding. The reality of unpleasant circumstances alone does not mean that you're outside of God's will for your life. It doesn't mean that you've been abandoned. And for Joseph, we see too that, that the circumstances that are unpleasant for him are not ultimately his story. 
They're not ours either. In Acts chapter 7, verse 10, Stephen says of Joseph, God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Joseph is 30 by the time his dreams are fulfilled. And the story that's told of his life is that God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. His troubles were not fleeting. They weren't light. They were difficult. They lasted a long time. But his story is that God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles Am I willing to let God take me wherever he wants to take me, however he wants to take me? Am I willing to endure unpleasantness, things being drawn out beyond how I would have them drawn out? The good news that I see in Joseph's story is that living with gutsy faith in those times in our lives doesn't mean just enduring difficulty after difficulty and just getting on with it, knowing some vague and invisible knowledge that, yes, I know that God is with me. God is with me, therefore I will just continue to endure, even though it's kind of invisible, kind of unknowable to me, except that I just know it's somewhere deep down inside my heart or mind. It actually makes a difference that God is with us. We see that in Joseph. When Joseph sold, we're told the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his master, both and at the same time that God was with him so that he prospered, but he's still a slave. He's living in the house of his Egyptian master, but he's prospering there. We go on to read, when Potiphar sees that the Lord was with him and gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. God's presence, God's favor first, becomes prosperity, or if we want another word for it, flourishing and favor in the context that he is in. And then more than that, as he's given more responsibility and more influence in that place, blessing pours out from him. It says, the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. There's an encouragement here to keep going in faith in the not there yet moments of our lives. Maybe the moment we're in right now because we can prosper in this place. We see in this story that it's better for us to be on track for God's plans and purposes, but not there yet, than to be outside of his will for us and comfortable. It should stir our faith and, and rise up hope in us today that actually we can prosper in the in-between moments of our lives. Again, Joseph's put in prison. And once again, we see that we get to live in God's goodness through his presence and his favor, even in the places we really do not want to be. Never mind like the, the, the slightly not ideal, but actually in the places we absolutely do not want to be, the places that we feel trapped in life, we can prosper there too. Because here in an episode that interestingly parallels the one nearer the start of his story when um, his brothers strip him of his cloak and then throw him into a cistern, into a well, we see that Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak and he flees from her. He's stripped of that once again, and then he gets thrown into a dungeon under their home. And it's repeated once more as he is in this place where he does not want to be, that the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. But we have to notice here that God was with him, helped him to prosper in that place, gave him success in whatever he did apparently, but not in getting out of the dungeon immediately not in leaving that place. Maybe you're in a moment of your life, in a chapter, in a circumstance, and you feel trapped in it, you feel jilted in it, you feel like you can't move beyond it. Last week, Brian challenged us to look around and see, okay, what, what is God doing right now? 
in the areas of my life that maybe aren't the one that I'm fixated on. What is God doing? And maybe similarly, like Joseph, he's given success in everything he did, but he's still in the dungeon. Can we see how God is at work, even if we're in a moment where we feel trapped or we feel like we're not moving or we feel like we're in that kind of similar space of waiting to see God break through? Can we see how God's favor is still on our life? How he's helping us to prosper here, even here? For Joseph, it looks like greater influence. He's made responsible for everything that is going on down there and Joseph lives out his God-given destiny to lead even while he's on the way to the full fulfillment of his dreams. It's not that there's a a leadership anointing spoken over his life that is only going to come into play someday when everyone's bowing down to him, but actually he's living it out right there in the dungeon in the midst of it all. Gutsy faith keeps us going after what God's called us to, even if we're like, I'm in a not there yet moment. I'm not there yet. Potiphar assigns two men to Joseph's care. And we read, after they'd been in custody for some time, and that's not like some time, I don't know how long it was. It's some time. After they'd been in custody for some time, it's been a minute. They're still in custody, and the the men have dreams the same night. And I love what we see here because they say, we both had dreams, and there's no one here to interpret them. And even though, even though Joseph is seemingly so far from the fulfillment of his own dreams, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. He's there. He's available. He's ready. He holds on to faith in the dream giver. He is close enough to him in that moment to hear from God, to know what these dreams mean. And he is used by him in the very area that he's yet to see fulfillment, that he's yet to see God come through. For all Joseph knows and can see, God has yet to come through for him. God has not come through for him on his dreams. And this part of the story could have been the moment when Joseph said, I used to believe that God spoke in dreams, but I don't anymore. Because I'm in a dungeon. And God said that my brothers were going to be bowing down to me. He spoke this over my life in two dreams a long time ago. And look, I'm here. So actually, I don't believe God speaks in dreams anymore. But that's not what this moment is. And there are going to be moments in our lives, there's going to be aspects of our lives where we feel stung by delay and disappointment, by the absence of anything happening as we look ahead. And we could let that be our story and we could let that squash our impact in an area that God might put us in. Or we can, like Joseph, catch every opportunity to be used by God to testify to what is true of him, even in the spaces where we are most desperate to see fulfillment that seems so impossibly far off for us, the things closest to our heart, perhaps. And we also see in Joseph that to live in in gutsy faith, to live with gutsy faith in this way, is to keep living this way, even beyond the pain of a false peak. We know what it feels like to, well, maybe you do, I don't know, If you've climbed a mountain, I don't do it often, but if you're climbing a mountain and you get to what you think is the top and then you see another top and you're like, wow, I'm not at the top. That was a false peak. It's painful because your body and your mind has been the whole time you've been walking uphill telling yourself that you enjoy this and that this is great and it's definitely going to be worth it. And then you get to what you think is the top. You find that you've you've started to shut down. Like your body's like, no, I was done because I thought I was finished. And then you suddenly see that there's another peak and you have to keep going. That hurts. Or if you're running a long race, and for some reason your like, Garmin watch is messed up or something's not working, you think you're near the end and then there's another two miles and you're like, I can't, I'm done, it hurts. Or when you think that we're done with lockdowns <laughs> and then there's another. 
It hurts to have a false peak. Maybe you also know what it's like in your prayer life to experience the pain of a false peak where you have been praying for something for years and years and waiting on God and then suddenly you see something in the distance and you think, God, this is you, this is you. You're, you're coming through for me. You're answering my prayers and wow, you're even better than I imagined. I can't believe how well you're just spinning this all together and, and then it doesn't happen. It doesn't come through. It's not your answer. It's not your breakthrough. It wasn't what you hoped it would be. It's grim. It hurts, and it can push us out of the game. But Joseph says to the cupbearer, we see him live through this. He says, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. He sees his way out. He sees his hope before him. But the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then two full years pass. And the story just pauses there for a second. We don't hear anything more about these years except that two full years pass. Did Joseph hear from God in this time? How sad was he? Was he in anguish? Was he filled with peace? Did he feel all of the things? Was he on his own? Two full years pass and he was forgotten. And then Pharaoh gets dreams he doesn't understand. And if you're a fan of the movie musical, then you will hear Pharaoh singing about these dreams in your mind as I talk about it right now. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from his dungeon. And beyond the pain of a false peak, two years beyond the pain of it, Joseph is ready when his time comes. He's ready even now. He's not so tarnished by disappointment that he's tapped out. He's once again asked to interpret dreams and he says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. He is humbled, but he is ready and he still believes. He says to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do and goes on to say, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. That's where I'm like, wow, Joseph, really? Really, you can, you can still believe that? Because he had two dreams. He had a dream given to him in two forms. Many years ago, 13 years ago. And he is able to say to Pharaoh, the reason you've been given a dream in two forms is because God has firmly decided upon it and he will do it soon. 13 years, he's able to testify to that truth. Can we, can we testify to things that are true even when we've not seen them be true for us yet? can we do that? Because it's one thing to stand and tell stories and testify to God's goodness in specific areas where we've seen it play out for ourselves. It's another thing entirely to stand on it, to speak about it, to testify to it if we've not seen that be the case yet, if we're still waiting. And Joseph does it. He says this means God's firmly decided on it and he'll do it soon. And what I love here, just as we are about to see God uh, fulfill the dreams that he put on Joseph's life, is that Joseph will have endured years of waiting. He's endured years of being in situations and circumstances which are the entire opposite of what God's spoken over his life through those dreams. He's also endured probably weeks and years of nothing changing, but when it happens, it's like boom, quick, speedy, accelerated, sudden. Pharaoh says to him, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. It's dungeon to the whole land of Egypt. But it's been a long wait. He's 30 years old. 13 years have passed. 
the mystery of God soon. We see that here. 13 years waiting. Maybe there are things that you feel like God has said he'll do it soon. Or things that you're like, I feel like God, you've said that this is in the work or that you're, you're doing it right now or that it's happening under the surface or that you're in the process of answering my dreams. Or maybe you said to me five years ago, it was gonna be soon. What are you doing? Where is it? We see so often throughout the story of scripture, just this mystery of God's soon. He said to Joseph, he gave Joseph dreams. But when they happened, when he broke through, it's sudden, it's quick, it's full, it's fulfilled. It makes me want to be brave. It makes me want to be ready for when that might happen, for when God soon might come about. The waiting might feel long, but your breakthrough can come so quickly. Okay, new Joseph. Are you still with me? I can't see you, so I hope so. Okay, so we're on to Joseph adopted father, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Joseph. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he really shines a spotlight on Joseph near the start. I'm gonna be in Matthew chapter one from about verse 18 onwards if you wanna have a glance at it in your own Bible. So at this point in history, as far as Joseph is concerned, something shocking, strange, and sad has happened. And his wife-to-be is pregnant, and it's not his. And we can relate to being in shocking, strange, and sad circumstances beyond our control. And in this moment for Joseph, he makes a plan. He makes an unsurprising, maybe a culturally gracious plan to divorce Mary quietly. But the scripture says, but after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel says two things. The angel says, marry Mary. Do the opposite of what you were planning to do. Marry Mary. And then when he's born, call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. When he heard, he acted. And not just in a like, oh God, you've been so gracious and like subtly changed my perspective. You've given me a slightly new way of looking at this thing or you've um, done a little thing that you've done for me before just again or you've reminded me of something else. No, I've completely changed my plans because of what you've said to me. I've done a, a complete U-turn. I'm doing the very opposite of what I'd planned to do because you told me once to do something differently. I think we see in this Joseph, in this moment, that gutsy faith for us right now might look like quick obedience. Quick obedience. So often we hear something from God and we want second, third, fourth, fifth confirmations before we might act on it. But here in this, in this story with Joseph, we see that immediate obedience in response to what God has said unlocks more revelation after revelation after revelation, dream after dream after dream, as God is like, okay, he's listening to me in this area. I'll speak more. It's not the other way around. It's not revelation, 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 obedience, although God can be so gracious and kind to do that for us. But for Joseph, it's quick, immediate obedience and then more revelation from God. Magi come and go. And when they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to come to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt when he stayed until the death of Herod. He got up during the night and fled from a danger that he had not seen with his own eyes. If God speaks, do we dare act on it immediately, even if it's sudden, if it's inconvenient, if it's maybe contrary to anything that we can see in front of us, obviously? Do we dare live as if the voice of God has more authority over what we see, over what we know because we can see it with our eyes to be true? For example, I feel like some of us right now, for some of you right now, maybe God is speaking to you. God is 
calling you into something or telling you to get ready or telling you to do something and all you can see is COVID. All you can see is pandemic. I get that because I feel like sometimes all I can see is pandemic. That's just, that's just what life is right now. That's what we're surrounded by. But actually God might be speaking to your heart and saying, no, I want you to do this. I want you to move in that. I want you to take a step forward in that. I want you to get ready by doing this thing, by acting in obedience. And you're like, I just can't see how there's a way forward in that right now because all I see is COVID. But do we dare act as if the voice of God has more authority over, over us than what we can see? Joseph hadn't seen the threat that the angel spoke about, he wouldn't have necessarily felt any need to escape, and yet he gets up during the night, takes Mary, takes Jesus, and goes. And the pattern repeats. I think there's things that God has spoken to you, or God will speak to you, that the enemy would have you doubt first, disregard, forget, just let it slip away when actually what we need to do is quickly obey, quickly act in response to what God's saying. Because as, as lots of us continue to wait on God moving in different areas of our lives, maybe he is waiting for you to move in an area of your life too. Maybe there's something he's spoken that he is waiting for you to put into action. Okay, final Joseph. This is Joseph of Arimathea. And we're going from the beginning of Jesus's life to the end. I'm in Mark chapter 15, verse 43-ish, if you want to follow along again. Jesus has been crucified, and there's a short account here of our third Joseph. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. We don't get much information here about this Joseph, but what we know is that he's waiting on the kingdom of God. He acts with boldness, and he cares for, carries, and buries the dead body of Jesus. There's not many words in this little account, but a few of the sentences just revolve around clarifying is Jesus really dead? Can you check that he's really dead? Yeah, he's really dead. He's carrying for, carrying and caring for Jesus' dead body. And he's waiting on the kingdom of God, but he's carrying the dead body of his savior, buying linen, putting him into a tomb. Jesus had told his followers that he would die and rise again. And yet as we read through the gospels, we, we catch the gist that they hadn't fully got it that their expectations maybe weren't uh, fully going to be what was realized. And we see in Joseph here that he rolls a heavy stone across the tomb. He pays for linen to bury Jesus. He does a good and honoring job of this. There's a permanence to his act. He closes the tomb. And a final takeaway I see here in, in this, Joseph, is that while we wait on the kingdom of God, while we wait on the coming but not here yet fully kingdom of God, we might have to carry the weight of, of dying dreams, of dreams and hopes that maybe we will have to watch die or set down or bury, not knowing if they'll be brought to life again, not knowing for sure what will happen, not knowing what God might do with them because in God's best story and in so many like them, death had to come before resurrection. 
and the great mystery that that was, what looked like the greatest defeat had to come before the greatest victory. And it was the greatest victory, but not without pain, not without grief, not without uncertainty and waiting. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 defines faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And it goes on to explain how it is lived out by faith. Abel gave his first and best. Noah built in holy fear. Abraham obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. He made his home where God had put him, even though we've learned in recent weeks that the promised land was not the perfect land. By faith, Sarah waited years for her miracle and saw it come about. By faith, Abraham prepared to put to death the dream that God had given him. By faith, Moses left comfort, stepped into his uncomfortable destiny. By faith, Rahab made a huge risk. What's God stirring faith in your heart for today? Or what dream has God put on your heart that is going to require gutsy faith as he takes you there, as you go there, as you run after it? For some of us, for lots of us maybe right now, the first dream, the first hope is to simply keep going. It's to keep running well through this era as it is hard, as we are hit by wave after wave of bad news and disappointment and grief. Maybe the dream is to keep going in the time when we're desperate to see change, but we're in the not yet. I've got a challenge for us today, and then just wanna lead us in a wee bit of a a response time before I hand back over to Stuart. The challenge is to assess Is there anything that God has called you to that you've tapped out of or that you've stopped or that you've just kind of watching other people do right now? Step back in with boldness. And then is there something that God has spoken that needs your quick obedience? Do what you need to do. Do what you need to do and do it quickly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Maybe just um, close your eyes as we begin to respond to God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we have seen the stories of people who've gone before us, who've lived with this kind of faith, since we see these stories in the Bible, we see it around us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Since we've seen people do this before, since there's evidence, since we've seen examples of this, if we're going to keep going, we need to throw off everything that hinders. That makes me think of what I do when a bug lands on me. Throw it off. We need to throw off anything that hinders. What might hinder? Apathy throw it off. Even just right now, if I mention something that rings a bell for you in your life, just do something physical to be like, I'm getting it off me, God, or I'm opening my hands, or I'm throwing it off. Apathy might hinder. If you feel apathetic right now, just be like, Jesus, I throw that off. Resentment, bitterness, selfishness, laziness, lies that we allow to camp out in our own mind, distraction, unhealthy coping mechanisms, fear. Is there anything else, Lord? Just highlight it to us right now. What do we need to throw off ourselves? And the sin that so easily entangles, Jesus, just show us what sin we need to throw off right now. We turn back to you and let us run with perseverance 
the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Jesus, we look to you right now. Our eyes are on you. And we acknowledge you as the God who, you're not just at the end of the line, far, far away, watching us, but you're running in front of us. You're the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. God, you're with us. You're able to help us. You inspire and perfect our faith. Jesus, help us right now. Grow faith in us, deep in us. Give us your faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.